I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Tuesday live stream. I'm Pastor Mike Winger. Today is going to be a bit unconventional. Uh, my intention is to have kind of a, a chill <laughs> live stream with you guys, interacting with you in the comments section. I'll be live reading your comments while they come in. That is the plan. And um, uh, and I'm going to be um, uh, answering your guys' questions and just, just going back and forth with you today. I, I don't have a lot planned for today's live stream because I'm gearing up for the uh, debate on Thursday on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where it will be me versus an atheist. Um, and uh, I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. But first, just want to greet you. Um, hello from Florida. H. Baker, good to see you. Micaiah Cox, good to see you again. First last, Joey Ellis. Flora Key, good to see you guys. Micaiah, um, Don. Um, I'm really blessed to have you guys join me and to just get to do this ministry online. It's such a neat thing to get to, to minister to people, to find more and more people around the world that are interested in sort of careful, thoughtful Christianity, um, being biblical in our views. I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, so we did a live stream one other time, kind of like this, where I just interacted right with the comment section, kind of live. And a couple things I've learned, and I'll share them with you right up front. One is this. I honestly can't read every comment because it, they come in so fast, I'm not able to keep up. And so I'm, I'm sorry if, I'm, if I don't get to your comment. It's not, I'm, I'm not being rude. It's just my inability to keep up with all the comments. Um, and if you put like the little at sign and put at Mike Winger, it highlights that comment for me. It doesn't look like it on your end, but on my end, I see the at Mike Winger and it helps me to notice if, you're, if your comment's directed to me as a question because you're also having your own conversation in the, uh, in the live stream chat. So, so yes, um, Nicole, uh, you're very welcome. I'm, it's my, my honor and pleasure to get to do what I'm doing here. Um, watching from Roseburg, the Grace Power is pretty cool. Um, ben Howell, <laughs> I get your joke there. <laughs> um, okay, so let's see. I see a question here already from Joss. Uh, hey, Mike, I have a question I've been meaning to ask. Is old earth creationism biblical? And wow, you just come out with the heavy hitter right off the, right off the bat. Let me take a little bit of time and just try to answer this a bit thoughtfully is old earth creationism biblical. Um, okay. First, let me just, let, let me just give you different camps of thought within this sort of old earth creationist, um, before I answer whether it's biblical or not, or at least in my opinion, um, first off there's, there's different camps, right? Uh, some people believe that the earth is old, but they do not believe in evolution. Others believe the earth is old and they believe in evolution. Others believe the earth is old and they believe in some sort of a mix of evolution plus miraculous intervention here and there. And so there's, there's, let's just say those are three different, I'm just kind of throwing this out there in my own observations. There's these different camps. Um, so what I'm saying is the age of the earth and the topic of evolution are different issues. Um, so you could say you believe in an old earth and, and hold to, um, you know, potentially a relatively younger Adam and Eve and a literal garden of Eden. You could, you could say you are an old earth and you hold to a very old Adam and Eve. And you think that they were, and I'm not really partial to this, but you think that they were sort of, um, specially created and, and they were separate from this other group of humans, humanoids that had, had evolved. I mean, that could be your perspective. I don't think that that's really strong biblically speaking. Yeah. 
So, um, but my perspective is that the issue comes in when when we talk about how old Adam and Eve are. That's where the battle is. That's for me where the struggle is. Is like trying to get a an uh, an ancient Adam and Eve is much more difficult than getting an old Earth. The Earth being old is not that hard to get, in my opinion, from a biblical perspective. Um, now I know I'm gonna probably have like the wrath coming down upon me for saying that. Um, but let me give you an example. In Genesis 1, we have, now I'm not saying that the, that, that the Bible teaches that. I, what, rather, what I'm saying is I think that the Bible's not super specific and clear on this topic. And so, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Okay, how much time took place between, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth is then without form and void? And darkness is upon the face of the deep, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters, and God says, let there be light. Okay, right there. This isn't exactly the gap theory. Rather, this is something different than that. This is simply saying that um, that the uh, the statement in Genesis 1 is that God created. And then creation day one. When did day one start happening? Was that the first day of the universe? Or the first day of God's special creative work upon the earth and in and, and its surrounding area? Anyways, I... One day, what I want to do is is do a thoughtful and thorough analysis of all the biblical passages that deal with creation in Genesis, in Psalms, in Job. And I want to look at these things and then answer this question really carefully and say, like, how legitimately can you say this? Currently, my position is um, that I'm a bit on the fence on, on what the scripture teaches. So I, I, I tend to be a little bit flexible on the age of the earth when it comes to the Bible. I'm, I'm flexible on that topic. I don't think that the Bible nails me down to a specific issue. There's a lot more that can be said about that, about the whole ages and all that. But I, I don't want to do this whole live stream on that one topic. So there's my clumsy opinion about the topic off the top of my head. Um, okay, so uh, Boogeyman has a question. What race was Jesus or is Jesus? Uh, I hear a lot of debates on this. Well, one thing we know about Jesus is Jesus was Jewish. He was a descendant of Abraham. He, you know, he came through the line of Abraham. Um, his DNA would, would all be Jewish, uh, except for, you know, Rahab was, uh, was non-Jewish and she's in the line of Jesus. And that's the only one that comes, comes to mind right now that's not Jewish in his line. There might have been one other. Um, so predominantly, mostly just he's Jewish. Um, is, is, is Jewish really a race? I, I object to the idea that race is that sort of thing. That, I think there's one race, right? The human race. We're all part of the same race. So if you want to say what sort of group of humans did he come from? Yeah, I think he came from the Jewish ones. Um, what would, what did his skin look like? Was it, it was probably darker than mine, right? It was, it was probably darker than mine and then lighter than, it was probably somewhere in the middle. <laughs> As you look at the spectrum of, of the, the whitest people and the blackest people on earth, it was probably somewhere near, nearer towards the middle, I imagine. Um, but we don't know. And I don't, and I don't think it matters. Now, when you look at pictures of Jesus in different cultures, um, it matters that he was Jewish, but I don't think it matters what his face looked like and what his skin looked like in that sense. Um, but when you look at pictures of Jesus from different cultures, you find that every culture makes Jesus look like them. And I don't think this is exactly a bad thing. It's not accurate, but I, I don't think it's a bad thing. So um, if we go into like old Korean artwork about Jesus from 40, 50 years ago, guess what Jesus looks like? He looks like a Korean guy. Now, if you go into um, some Hispanic cultures, you'll see like a Jesus that looks Hispanic. If you go into European cultures, then you'll see a Jesus that looks that looks European. Middle Eastern cultures, a Jesus that looks 
Middle Eastern. So depending on what culture you go to, people tend to make Jesus look like themselves. And can you blame them? Most people for most generations of humanity until we have all this modern, you know, TVs and monitors and computer screens and cell phones, most people would always just see people that look like them for their whole life. So they hear a story about Jesus and they naturally imagine that he looks like everybody else that they know. They're not thinking to themselves, what do the people in the Middle East look like as I'm drawing this picture of Jesus? No, they're like, what is my dad, my mom, my sister, my brother, my grandpa? What do they look like? I'll make Jesus look that way. Um, so I think it's natural for a culture to make Jesus look, look in their artwork like they do in, in that culture. Now that we're multicultural with the internet, now we're, get, now we're acting like it's racism when someone made a, you know, like if a Norwegian guy makes a white looking Jesus, I'm like, well, duh, he's a, he's, they're white. You know, like if, a, if, if a, 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 somewhere in the middle of Africa, they make a black Jesus artwork, duh, they're black. Like, of course they're going to do that naturally, uh, not knowing what he looks like pulling from the, uh, the, the images of the people around them. So to me, that's, that's not a race issue at all. Um, so yeah, but it is that he is Jewish. That does matter. Um, let's see. Stephen Medrosen says, are you planning on doing a video on the abolition of, oh, abom abomination of desolation? I think that's what you're referring to. Also unrelated, what are your thoughts on Jeff Durbin from Apologia Radio? Your videos have been such a blessing. Okay, so uh, two questions there. Um, the abomination of desolation, um, I don't even have that on my list of future videos. Um, I I'm trying to think when I did some stuff on Daniel nine, I didn't really get into, yeah, I didn't really get into, you know, I, I just, I don't really have that on my list currently. I'll consider it. Um, I'll definitely think about it. What the abomination of desolation is. I'll, I'll just say this off the top of my head is that, um, whatever this thing is, it, it's, it's something that happens in Jerusalem and it's something that happens in a, a standing temple in Jerusalem inside the holiest place of the temple where something is set up. The scripture says something's going to be set up there. And this, if, if my understanding of Daniel's right is where someone, this antichrist figure is going to be setting up this abomination in the temple and is going to be worshiping himself as though he's God. So it may be an image of himself, but it'll be something set up in the temple. Um, and then it's something that happens in the middle of the uh, tribulation. That's my view as a, as a pre-trib. Uh, I believe the tribulation is yet to come and it's a literal seven years. That's my perspective. But I'll say of all of my views in scripture, the ones I hold the most loosely are the ones having to do with future eschatology because I realize that um, I should approach this topic with some humility. <laughs> and so, so yeah, maybe one day I'll, I'll do that. Um, so I'll definitely consider it. You also asked about Jeff Durbin. You know, I've only heard a little bit of Jeff Durbin stuff. And um, so I, I don't really have a strong opinion about the guy. I really love that he's got the gospel. I know he's got the gospel solidly down. I also know he's super strong Calvinist and we disagree on that topic. But I'm very glad he's out there as a brother of mine, you know, presenting Christ and doing, you know, interacting with, with, uh, with whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons and things like that. Um, recently there was a video they did where there was a lot of controversy around it because they debated him and I think him and James White debated a Mormon and then Leighton Flowers did a, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Leighton Flowers did a video dealing with that and saying that their, um, their explanation of evil, of how God could allow evil in the world, that that was deficient in the Calvinistic worldview. And I'm, uh, yeah, on that, on that issue, I go, well, well, yeah, it is. It is deficient, in my opinion, 
although I would not challenge God's goodness, I think it's really hard to defend from their perspective. And the smartest thing to do if you're in a debate like that is to just stay away from that issue. This has nothing to do with Mormonism. <laughs> just stay away from it. It's not, shouldn't even be part of that debate in my opinion. Um, but yeah, but, but he's in, like, he's in my camp, right? The, 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 we believe and we really follow Jesus and we trust the word of God. That's Jeff Durbin's in that camp. Um, so I, I'm happy for that. Yeah. But like anybody, you know, you got to listen to everybody with, with a, not, not a grain of salt, but with, with an ounce of wisdom, <laughs> with some discernment and some thought. Um, um, Sonny Contreras asks, what do you think about Ben Shapiro? Um, you know, my forays into politics tend to be occasional. So what I tend to do is maybe like some of you, I, I don't, I don't watch and keep up with all that's going on politically in the world. Um, I'm very much like, I'm, I'm like a box guy and I'm in my box right now. I'm in the box of studying the scriptures and evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And, and next time I'll be in a different box, but rarely is that box that I'm focused on political. Usually that's because there's major elections coming and I'm going, I better familiarize myself with the candidates and the issues. And when I did that last time, I listened to plenty of Ben Shapiro and I found a lot of what he said very refreshing, like some of you guys do, because his worldview is basically biblical, basically biblical when it comes to morals and values, uh, his worldview is basically biblical. Um, not when it comes to Jesus, obviously. Um, I like that. His sarcasm is entertaining. But I think it's also, um, in the long run, that sort of vitriol and sarcasm towards those we disagree with will backfire in the end. I really do. I think that. Um, and so I would say as Christians, when you see guys like uh, Ben Shapiro who are being, you know, they appeal to you because that we have a similar worldview when it comes to at least moral values. Um, don't think that you should copy his manner of behavior because I don't think it's I don't think it's becoming of a Christian to always speak that way about the things you disagree with. He may be right about those issues. Um, yeah. So there's, there's, there's just some thoughts. I hope that that helps. Um, I really appreciate the, a lot of the stuff he shares, but I'm able to, to take, you know, chew up the meat and spit out the bones. <laughs> I like that old phrase. Um, all right, let's see. Um, Isabella Broadbent says, do you think Christians should make extra effort to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses? Um, cart crashing, <laughs> cart crashing, or just go, or just witness back when they come to our doors. I think we should, as a rule, as Christians, we should make extra effort to talk to everybody about Jesus. And um, one danger we have as Christians is that we focus on I'm going to witness to the Jehovah's Witnesses when they're actually a very small group of people around the world, but we don't witness to our neighbors or our coworkers or the people that are right there near us. So I would say we should treat them the same way we treat everyone else. The one advantage we have with JWs is they're already wanting to talk about God, right? So this is really, it's like easy to start a conversation with them because they want to talk about God. Now they may find that you're an active resistor, someone who is, um, is unable to be persuaded by them, and at which point they may cut you off. And they've, I've had a few of them do this to me. Um, but yeah, I think absolutely. You go to their cart, go talk to them, go, to, you know, we should be bold with the gospel, you know, as a rule with all people, not just them. Yeah. yeah. So let's, uh, let's see. Thanks guys for being here. I do appreciate it. Oh, let me, I wanted to share some trivia with you. 
Here's a random trivia. Since did you know you know what day's coming up tomorrow? You know what holidays you know what special day is coming tomorrow? Did you guys know? Reformation Day. That's right. Not Halloween. Reformation Day. This is the five hundred first anniversary, if I have it right, of the Reformation. And it's we, we date the anniversary of the Reformation to a special event right where um where Martin Luther took these 95 statements that he was bringing issues or complaints to the Catholic Church, he actually wanted to change the church from within. People don't maybe realize that. But the way that he decided to go public with this is somewhat controversial nowadays, although it wasn't then. And he took his, his 95 statements, his 95 theses, and he hammered them with a nail onto the wall of the church. That's what he did, Martin Luther. Um, what... <laughs> What a lot of people don't realize is that that was not inappropriate. I mean, now I've, I even had, I had a, a teacher in college who attacked Martin Luther for this. He was like, he, he defaced a church, you know, and da, da, da. And actually the, everybody it was, it was the one place in the culture where everyone gathered was the church. And it was like the bulletin board system of the day to put signs up on the church door because everyone's going to come and see the sign there. And then when they, you know, then when they gather, they get your information. So he put it there as a public declaration. He wanted to have a discussion. He wanted to have debates. He wanted to talk about these issues because he wanted to, from within, change the church. And it was only uh, later that things things went a different route um, and the Reformation itself actually happened. So I thought that's a little, little fact for you to know. A lot of people uh, knock him for, for hammering something onto a church uh, door, but there was nothing wrong with that. I was considered totally fine and appropriate. Um, Darth Vega says, uh, was the American revolution an example of a violation of Romans 13, one, 13 verses one through seven submitting to government, man, Darth, I have the same question myself. And I, uh, I, I actually, in my first Peter series, um, and I don't, did I cover it in my Roman series too? But I think I, I targeted the issue in my first Peter series where I talked about submission to government and I asked the question, Biblically, was the Revolutionary War okay? And here's to me how it gets how it becomes kind of a complicated issue. For one, I wasn't there, right? I don't really actually know all the history, all the history, and all the details on it, and so I don't feel like I'm in a position to make that judgment call. Um, you know, at some point, I think in the ref, in, in the Revolutionary War, at some point, there's a new government and there's the old government, and your allegiance must switch to the United States, right? Like I'm not still bound to rebel against the U S and try to come into submission to Britain. Obviously that's not the case. I don't think anybody would suggest that. Um, except maybe some of my British friends, I don't know, maybe you would. Um, but the question is like, when did that, when did the scale tip? Was it, was it, was it when they said, Hey, we've got, you know, taxation without representation. This is wrong. Was it, um, was it when the British started, uh, um, you know, abusing or, or mistreating American citizens in their views, uh, in their view, at what point did that shift come? Um, at what point is it okay to be a, a guerrilla, you know, in the middle of a war? Um, when you have like, let's say an even more oppressive government than England was, you know, like you're dealing with a Cuban dictator and that sort of thing. And I would say, um, uh, I don't know clearly the answer to those questions. And I, I think that it's a little bit reckless for me to try to pretend like I can judge from my perspective. I haven't even looked into it. What on earth are you doing? This is Mika is joining our live stream. She's uh yes. <laughs> she's just 
she's under the camera right now, like wheedling around. Here's her tail. <laughs> um, yeah, so I can't even read your guys' comments anymore. Um, but you could you could check that out. I, I think that if I was a Christian alive at the time, I would really, really struggle with how to make that decision. And I, I sort of sympathize with those people. Um, just because I'm American, I'm, I, I want to say that the American Revolution was justified. But that, that's no reason to make that judgment call. I need to make things judgment calls based on scripture. I think I'm justified now submitting to this established American government. I'm not sure when that switch took place. And um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, Josh Parker says, how serious should we take the early church fathers pre-Nicaea when it comes to theology? And were the apostles complete failures in teaching them if their theology is different than ours? Um, I, I don't think that... Okay, let's just separate all Christians into two categories. Um, you have the, the apostles who gave us the word of God, who gave us the scriptures, who gave us, um, you know, the New Testament itself. And then you have everybody else, whether they came later or even if they came at the same time. In fact, let me, here, check this out. Let me uh, bring my Bible app up. And I want to show you something I think that relates to Sola Scriptura, Galatians chapter 1. Okay, so the apostles, they give us the theology of Jesus Christ. We have a recording in the New Testament. This is, this is where we have the record of their teachings, right? Paul, he then writes in Galatians 1 and he elevates the teachings, which we have in our New Testament. He elevates the teaching above the apostles themselves. Right here in Galatians chapter 1. Um, Let's see. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, see, we would be the apostolic teaching or even an angel from heaven, some sort of revelation from heaven, even if that happens, right? And, and, and one of those groups of people should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we, we preached, past tense, to you, let him be accursed, which means that anything in the future that comes that disagrees with this original gospel presentation, that that's false. That's false. And even an apostle doesn't have the authority to change it. Keep that in mind as I try to answer your question. And he goes on and he makes it even stronger. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I still were... We're still trying to please man. I would not be a servant of Christ. So I think that this passage has bearing on the doctrine or the, the idea of sola scriptura or that the Bible alone has the, the authority to give us the, the doctrines that we're called to believe as Christians. Um, there's more to it than that, but that's one way of putting it. So let's say um, you've got this, this church father guy and he writes some weird wacky thing 100, 200, 300 years after Jesus. And we're thinking, well, you know, he was considered a, a, an important guy and he wrote stuff down in the second or third century. Should I take that and let it change my theology? Well, actually, according to Paul, even if Paul himself came to you with weird, different teaching, you're supposed to ignore it. So I look at all church fathers the same way I look at modern Bible commentators and I say, you are just a commentator, just like me. The, the, that was my commentary on Galatians 1. But if... I'm wrong. You go with Galatians 1, what actually says. 
my commentary does not establish the truth of it. So I, I think that that's, it makes it really easy to look at those guys. And I go, imagine if you were, you were one of the apostles. Okay, like I'm in church, I'm in ministry. I have people that I've discipled who have weird things in their heads. And you can't blame me for that because I tried to keep it from happening. <laughs> but they still got weird stuff in their heads. And Paul, sure enough, he would have discipled someone who probably got off base somewhere, got a little weird somewhere. Um, he even writes to correct false teaching that happened in the first century First uh, Corinthians, he's trying to correct false teaching. Galatians, he's correcting false teaching from people who said they came from Jerusalem. And so you've, you've got this strong biblical case that the Bible needs to correct the teachers, not the other way around. So I look at all those guys as uh, commentators who are someone interesting to listen to and read, but they're not authoritative in any sense um, when it comes to what I should believe. My, my thoughts on it. One, one day I want to do a video on uh, Sola Scriptura or maybe maybe a few videos on it, maybe a couple of videos on it. Um, I have this, this Catholic article I've got saved on my phone where they, um, they, uh, they did an article against um, Sola Scriptura and I 20 points against it. And I was like, I'd like to go through this article, be a good chance to hear both sides and me try to refute those things. Um, okay, from Yelljack. In light of 2 John 1.11... Should we separate from William Lane Craig because he accepts Catholics as brothers in Christ? Um, okay, I, actually, I like this question. Okay, let's look at let's look at Second John one eleven. Okay, sometimes you guys ask me about teachers I don't know much about, and um, and I'm, you know, I kind of hedge my bets basically because I don't know a whole lot about those guys and I don't want to speak wrongly about somebody, so I'm cautious. Um, I've heard an awful lot of William Lane Craig and his teaching and his debates, and a lot of his stuff, and um, I don't know that I fully agree with him about Catholicism, um, but I think that a lot of people misunderstand him. So let me let me tell you uh, what I what I think about this issue. Okay, so Second John one, Second uh, John eleven. Okay, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Is that about William Lane Craig? <laughs> okay, so if anyone. Um, comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Basically, don't partner with people. This has to do with actually traveling teachers. That's why he says receive them into your house. The idea was that you were going to enable these teachers to um, to have somewhere to stay, to give them food. So um, it doesn't mean when a Jehovah's Witness knocks on her door, you can't invite them in. Um, I, when I was younger, I, I was worried, does it mean that? So I wouldn't invite them in because I, I don't understand the exactly the logic there, but well, I sort of do. I don't want to take part in their works, but part of me wants to bring them in and keep them from going somewhere else so that I'm actually slowing them down, you know? So, um, so in that sense, I'm actually having a good effect by bringing them in. But this has to do with like hosting them, uh, bringing them nourishment, bringing them supplies so that they can continue on their journey. So he says, don't do that. So if, if is, is what William Lane Craig's doing, if he says Catholics are our brothers, is that going against the teaching we have in Second uh, John, the teaching we have in the New Testament? Well, I don't think he actually exactly says that Catholics are our brothers exactly. Here's William Lane Craig's view as, as I understand it, and I've listened to quite a, quite a bit of his stuff. He thinks that Catholicism has, by and large, a, a wrong gospel because they have a gospel of works. He adds one caveat, which I don't really add, because um, I, I believe it has a false gospel. 
um, his caveat is this, is that some Catholics will actually say, hey, um, yeah, you need to do these works to merit salvation, but the works themselves are done by the grace of God working in you. And therefore, your works are a result of God's grace. Now, to me, this is gobbledygook. This is just, I'm just trying to play both sides of the fence. I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. That's my view of that. Um, and so I ignore it. Uh, he says, no, no, maybe, you know, maybe it's, it's, he doesn't think it's a valid argument, but he's thinking maybe there's these Catholics holding to this view that are, that are perhaps somehow having a solid gospel uh, at the core of all the extra teachings that are just wrong. And so, yeah, um, I don't think when he says Catholics are our brothers, he is not saying that the Catholic doctrines are true or the Catholic gospel is right. I, I think what he means is that there's Catholics that are saved. And, um, and in that, I would say, I agree. There's probably some Catholics that are saved. I just fear that it's a small minority based upon the Catholics I meet who all have a works-based gospel. When I interview them, they don't know about the, the, the papacy and the Council of Trent. They've never read Vatican. They don't even know what I'm talking about when I say those things. But when I actually have encounters with them where I ask them about salvation, every time I've ever done it, it's always been works-based. And that's the experience I have with most Catholics is they have a, a, a works-based gospel and they've sort of absorbed it sort of from the church. Um, most of them don't remember catechism, don't remember the, the teachings they've learned in the church. Some of them do and some are going to disagree with me here. But I always have someone disagree with me. So, um, so yeah, I guess that's how it is. Um, that, I think, I think is a good way to put it. I don't think we need to separate from William Lane Craig on that issue. Um, uh, over that issue, I should say. Even if I disagree with him in some respect. Maybe he's right and I'm wrong. Uh, but that's my opinion. All right, Tim G says, as a youth pastor, what should be our main focus in teaching our youth? I'm a youth leader for our fifth and sixth graders, and it seems we're teaching them more about outreach rather than Jesus. Um, it's kind of need-based, in my opinion, Tim. Um, I think it can be challenging depending on the youth in your church. I guess one of the big questions I have is this. When the youth come to you in fifth grade, do they know who Abraham is? Do they know who David is? Do they know what the Bible is? Do they know the gospel? Do they know some of the basics of Christianity? And if the answer is no, they really don't know those things, even though they've been in children's ministry, they just somehow, it's just gone right over their heads. Somehow it doesn't stick. Maybe there's no discipleship happening at home. In my experience, if there's no discipleship at home, then they don't remember what they hear in church as their kids growing up. It's white noise a lot of the time. Um, uh, so if, if there's none of that's going on, then you got to start really basic with them and train them all that on all those things. If perhaps they do know those things, then you can go to the next level. It's kind of like Hebrews where he says, like, I want to take you guys into the deeper things, but you're like babies and you need milk and not meat. So, so you ask, where are they at? That's the first question I'd have. Um, you know, encouraging them to evangelize is a really good thing. That's really positive. And I wouldn't stop doing that. But... Um, but I would, I would say this as a youth leader, and I've been doing it for a long time now. Um, if you're not ministering to the ones who want to grow, then those ones won't grow. And if we, and maybe you're not doing this, maybe this doesn't relate to your stuff at all, Tim. Uh, but for me, my first year as a youth pastor, I like preached to the kids who didn't care, trying to get them to care. And then after that year, I realized how much kind of wasted time there was and how little fruit there was in that. 
And then what I started to do was I started to create in that youth ministry an environment where I was like, I'm going to make disciples and I'll make it so that a kid who wants to love Jesus will feel so much like they belong here and like they're growing here and they're learning here. And, and this is a blessing to them. And I found that the, that, uh, the kids who were not interested, that they either became uncomfortable being in an environment where there was just real discipleship happening and they weren't part of it. Um, and they either distanced themselves or they became part of it. Right. But it, but what happened is the peer pressure shifted and changed. So my, my thought in, in my own experience as a youth pastor and not some big mega church, just like most youth pastors with a small youth ministry, um, is that the fruit of making disciples was so much better than the fruit of, um, trying to make every youth service an outreach <laughs> when I have a church of people and not, it's not an outreach. It's just not your, your regular meetings, not an outreach. I mean, maybe if you have like some of these giant churches and you got 700 kids and you never know, you don't know any of their names, maybe that's an outreach, but not when you have the same 15 or 30 or 40 kids coming every week. Um, that's not an outreach, that's discipleship. And so anyway, those are just some thoughts I got for you. Let's see, Derpiculus, Derpiculus, I like that name. If you could tell you're a gamer by your name. Um, why do you believe in God? Is it your family not strong enough to throw away your identity for the pursuit of knowledge, truth, and freedom? Yep, those are my reasons. You totally got me, Derp. <laughs> like, those are totally my reasons. I believe in God because of my family and because I'm just too weak. Like, are you serious? <laughs> like, is this the caricature you have of, of me or of Christians? Um... Uh, no, no. My family was, uh, I don't usually share too much of my testimony online because some of my family watch these videos and I really don't want to, you know, em embarrass anybody, to be honest. Um, but my family was not following God and I, I was the only one. And um, I remember one time trying to talk to one of the people who lived in the home with me who was <laughs> about God and, and they just responded. I really don't want to talk about this. I don't like talking about this issue. And uh, that was it. I went to church all alone. Um, I came to the Lord. He changed my life. He did. Now, you could say I'm delusional, but my life actually did change radically and has continued to to be like changing as, as, I, as I continue to follow the Lord. And the spiritual realities the Bible talks about, those seem awfully real in my life. Um, now, as I get older, since you asked her, I... I started thinking, you know, what other reasons would I have or ways to verify that God is real? And so I've looked into, you know, some of the philosophical arguments for God's existence. I think, honestly, my favorite one is the argument from common sense. I, I think that it's absolutely common sense that God exists. And I think for those who disagree that that they're, um, they're lacking some common sense in that regard. It's not meant to be an insult. I, I just mean it. That's just my description of it. But I think the other classical arguments for God's existence are really solid. Um, I think the moral argument is incredibly powerful. And one of the one of the things that shows how powerful it is, is how much people don't have an answer for it, um, except to either deny actual moral facts or to say you believe in moral facts and just never offer a reason to ground them. And I, I think that that's, that's very telling. When you have one side that has a cohesive view of reality and the other side that just is juggling things with nowhere to put them. You know, I, I don't have anywhere to ground these truths. I think that's pretty profound. Um, I think that the beginning of the universe is a pretty profound piece of evidence for the existence of God. And I don't know of any, any 
even viable explanation beyond God for, you know, the beginning or the creation of the universe. I don't know of one. And um, I hear things like, uh, like I, I heard um, um, Lawrence Krauss, who's an atheist physicist, who um, he says uh, uh, the universe came out of nothing. And then when you tell him, wait, nothing doesn't come... Nothing doesn't produce anything because nothing's nothing. And he goes, well, actually, it turns out nothing's very interesting. And he just starts playing with the meaning of nothing. And his version of nothing is this sort of space with energies and potential energies and all these interactions going on. That's not nothing. Um, now, can he explain where that, how that came about? Well, no, he can't. And can it be past eternal? No, past e eternal is an infinite regression of time that doesn't make sense. Um, which I won't try to explain in this video. These are my reasons. And um, you asked. So, um, so yeah. Now, the thing is, anybody who's listened to me for any length of time knows that I have thoughtful reasons for these things. So I, I'd encourage you, Derp, to just check out my, my videos. Look online at some of my video content and check it out. Um, if you hear a Christian who appears to be intelligent and reasonable, it might be that they're actually intelligent and reasonable and that they're not lying through their teeth. <laughs> It's just, what if, what if they're really thinking about these things and they're not the caricature that you seem to proclaim when you ask questions like that? Um, like I'm not courageous enough to look at the truth. Um, I'm one of the people, maybe one of the few Christians who says, uh, if, if I didn't have uh, evidence for Christianity, I wouldn't be up here preaching it. I would not be up here preaching it. I don't know that I'd be believing it, um, to be honest. That's just my own experience. So... Um, let's see, uh, Sarah Beauchamp says, Hey, Pastor Mike. Hi, Sarah. Uh, can you please give me some wisdom or counsel on how to avoid major impatience leading to anger while driving in traffic? Yes, actually, I know exactly what you're talking about because I have been there. Um, but not now because I'm completely perfect in every way. No, <laughs> no, but I've grown so much. So, um, I found, I've, I've had jobs where I did a lot of driving and I found myself getting really frustrated in traffic. And I found that every time somebody like would do something wrong, cut me off or whatever, I felt like I had to complain about it. And I'd verbalize that complaint. And I sort of started, I was sitting alone in the car, you know, and I started hearing myself do this. And I could, I just felt wrong. It just felt wrong. And, um, and sometimes I would just get angry, angry about it, not just irritated, but angry. And so I, I committed to pray about this issue. And so every time I found myself getting frustrated or wanting to complain, I would pray. I would pray. And I would say, Lord, here, here would be my prayer. Lord, help me control the things that I can control and to not obsess and react in the flesh to the things I can't control. And I would pray that over and over again. Um, someone cuts me off and I think I can't control the way they drive, but I can control how I react. I can't control that the traffic is there and how busy it is, but I can control my attitude and I can control the way I respond. So every time that outward thing was going on, I would look back at the plank in my eye and I would pray. And I found over time that God really helped me a lot. And I still want to grow in that area. I still need to grow in that area. Um, but it's much, much better than it was. So that would be my, that would be my advice. Um, another thought is, you know, when you see those drivers, think of a time when you were driving a little bit like that and how maybe you had a good reason and maybe they have a good reason. And even if they don't, it might help your heart to just imagine that they do. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, Trust Jesus has a question. Mike, what do you think of Oriental theology? I'm a member of specifically Coptic. I have not researched into Coptic beliefs. I'm so sorry. I, I just honestly don't know. I know this much 
And when I know this much about something, if I if I speak about it, I always will later look back and go, I shouldn't have said anything. I should have looked into it more. I don't know much about Coptic stuff. I know that the, in Eastern thought and theology, what I've been told by other people is that it's like really confusing to someone who has the more the Western mindset. And so um, maybe you could tell me if this is true, where they like to sort of hold hold contradictory, seemingly contradictory things at the same time and just sort of hold them together in tension. I know that um, the Eastern Orthodox Church believes that they have extra biblical traditions that are binding and they cut those traditions off at like 700 AD or something like that, or at least they say they do. Um, I can say this. I've had one girl who left our fellowship and she joined uh, uh, an Eastern, uh, East, I believe it was Eastern Orthodox group. And after talking with those guys, she no longer knew the gospel. Now, uh, I'm not, now I'm not saying that, you know, you're, you said you're Oriental Orthodox. I don't even know the differences. That's why I'm afraid to talk about it too much. But at that point is after she talked to them for a while, I was like, well, what do you need to do to be saved in your, in your new beliefs? And she says, um, I don't know. I don't know. And I said, well, what if someone's dying? Like, how do they, how can they be forgiven? And she says, I'm not sure. I'd have to have them talk to the leaders of my church. And, and so I would say, start there, you know, is just write, you know, trust Jesus, just write out for yourself. What's the essentials of the gospel? Write that out. You know, send it to me in an email, go to biblethinker.org. I'll look for an email from trust Jesus. And you just tell me in short, like in one paragraph, it's got to only be one paragraph. What are the essentials of the gospel? This is, this is how someone can be saved eternally. That's what they have to have. And I would love to, to read that from you. And then maybe I can send you a message back responding to it. Um, okay, first, first lasts asks, that's hard to say. First last asks, uh, is killing in self-defense or helping someone in a deadly encounter wrong in God's eyes? Um, I think that this is a really easy one, in my opinion. Um, the Bible seems very clear. No, it's not wrong. If it's necessary killing in self-defense, it's not wrong. Um, so in the Old Testament law, um, now we're not under the law, but that doesn't mean we don't learn anything from the law or we don't have any principles we can we can garner from the from the law. So in the, in the Old Testament law, if somebody were to strike someone in self-defense um, and there was reason to believe it was really self-defense, they were under no uh, they were under no no penalty. There was no nothing to be done to them. So there was absolutely no problem there. Um, obviously, I mean, how horrific would that be to, to even, even in self-defense, you know, it'd be terrible to, to kill somebody. Oh gosh, like God forbid that ever would have to happen. Um, but, but I do think it's completely valid and, and that even Jesus, he has this very interesting statement where he says to the, to the disciples right before he's betrayed, and this is going to be the most dangerous time on earth for the disciples, um, as far as during the teaching ministry of Jesus, they weren't in, in as much danger as they were that night he was betrayed and those days immediately after. Um, so he tells them, uh, you know, earlier I told you don't take a sword. That was when they were on their mission trip. But now he's he's he says, take up a sword. And so they have, oh, we have two swords. And he goes, oh, that's enough. And I think the implication, in my opinion, is that this is, this is to give you self-defense. And then Peter uses the sword to chop off the high priest's servant's ear when they, when Judas betrays Jesus and they're in the garden. Um, and then Jesus stops him and he's like, no, no, Peter, don't do this. Right. I'm being taken away to be, to be offered basically for our sins. But, but Peter don't do this, but then why have a sword? Well, it was to keep them from also being killed, I think. 
So I think self-defense is a legitimate thing, but there's also a legitimate thing of being a martyr for the Lord. It doesn't mean you, you throw your life away, but, um, but yeah, it's all contextual. So may God give us wisdom on how, how to apply those contexts. But scripture seems to indicate very clearly self-defense. And I think personally, um, let's say a dad or a husband who refuses to protect his own dropped the ball morally and that I have an obligation to protect my wife. And if someone breaks into my home and they're stealing my, my stuff, I'm not necessarily obligated to kill them for that. Okay, that's stuff versus a life. But if they're going to murder my family, I think that, you know, over my dead body. <laughs> I, think that that's, I think that is the biblical view on that. Over my dead body, you know. And um, uh, yeah, so there's more to be said on that. But I hope that answers that question with a couple of scriptures from the Old and New Testament. Um, for Bradley Wilcox asks, what about soldiers that have to kill? (sighs) Soldiers that have to kill. Um, that isn't, there is such a thing as a just war. The question is, if you're a soldier, are you in a just war? And you can't just assume that you are because for every war, there's two sides. And sometimes one side's right. One side's wrong. Sometimes both sides are wrong. And sometimes it's really hard to figure out what's going on. So I think each soldier must, within themselves, you have to decide if this is valid or not. You can't just say, I'm following orders. You, you, you have to know, you know, you're going to remember this the rest of your life, that you're going to live with this decision. So hopefully you make a right one. Um, so like, would I have, would I have helped, uh, you know, storm, you know, uh, on D-Day? Would I storm the beaches on D-Day? Absolutely. I would think that that was morally right to do. Um, but would I do that... To, you know, for every war? No, uh, probably not. Yeah. Uh, Damien asks a question. Um, Mike Winger, what would be your, uh, response? What would your response be to someone demanding evidence for hell? I, okay. I don't know (laughs) that I, I don't have direct evidence for hell. And, and let me say something I don't think that as Christians, we have to prove every fact in the doctrines and teachings of Christianity. For instance, let's follow this out. Hell can be, can be known to be true because of some other central tenet of Christianity that gives us good reason to believe in hell, right? To believe in the truth of hell because we have good reason to believe in this. So for instance, um, uh, the person in the Bible that talks about talks about hell more than any other person in the scriptures, many of you know this, is Jesus. Um, so, if you have good reason to believe the words of Jesus in the Bible are true, then you have good reason to believe in hell. Now, if I can prove who Jesus is, if I can show, say, the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, um, if I can show prophetic fulfillment of who Jesus is, then I have good reason to believe in hell. And it's sort of like a two-step plan to get you there. Now, there's a whole different issue of whether or not you, uh, how you explain hell to someone who has moral challenges of hell. I will do teaching on this one of these days um, as, as I'm able to, um, well, you know, God willing. <laughs> but it's on my list and it's on my heart to do this stuff because I feel like a lot of people stumble on this issue and a lot of Christians don't know how to talk about it, how to talk about the concept of hell. And, and I, I think that it's really good for us to think carefully without all the emotional baggage, but just think carefully about the topic of hell so that we can be ready to discuss it with individuals. Um, 
and uh, yeah, and explain it to them. Like for instance, I I object to the use of the word torture when we talk about hell because torture is inherently morally wrong. That word implies morally wrong treatment. So hell hell's not hell's perfectly morally right. I think hell is measured p punishment according to exactly what is just and perfect, and it's different depending on the person. And I think that the scripture seems to indicate that Jesus himself seems to imply it when he talks about. Um, uh, the, the day of judgment being more tolerable for one group of, of people than it is for a different group of people, depending on not only what sins they committed, but what opportunities they had, what revelation they had from God. Like God measures the, the motives of the hearts and he measures the actions. He judges us perfectly and rightly. And these are some of the things that I think we need to talk about when we deal with the, the issue of hell. Um, but I, I don't personally uh, try to prove hell Instead, I'm going to go to the central tenets of Christianity. Approve Christ, approve the Bible, and then um, the topic of hell is going to going to iron itself out in some ways naturally. So yeah, yeah. I'll look for another uh, question from you guys. Let's see. Joey Hancock says, "Mike, who is the man who runs away naked in Mark 14:51 and 52?" Well, let's let's read the passage. Some of you are like not familiar with it. You're like, what? Um, so yeah, Mark 14. Jesus is being um, uh, betrayed. This is this is in the garden, and he's betrayed. And um, and after his betrayal, it says, and they all left him and fled. So now we have they all leave him and flee. This this is important because this verse fifty actually helps us identify a little bit of who this person is. And then in verse fifty one, it says, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now I don't know if he was in entirely naked. I think that they would possibly use the term naked to refer to someone who was just wearing their undergarments. Um, but anyhow, he was obviously not appropriately clothed in that society. Um, and so, you know, he runs away. So there's a lot of debate on who this person is. And some people think, Hey, that's, that's Mark. That's Mark. That's the guy that authored the book of Mark. And he was the, uh, the one who was trained who's writing down the things that Peter was saying. That's the church tradition on the topic is that uh, Peter um, is the source for the information in Mark. Um, and the young man is, is this is like kind of an ancient biography way of him indicating th who the writer is. It was common to do biographies of, of famous people and try to leave the author sort of um, less known, you know, less noticeable in the writing. That was, that was, a practice they had. I've actually just been recently studying this because I'm preparing for this debate on the resurrection. And while I don't think the authorship of Mark is going to come into the topic, I tend to, I tend to try to over prepare for things. So yeah, one statement would be this young man was actually Mark, the author. Um, that's one perspective on it. I don't know of another like viable way of looking at it. Um, so I, I think that that seems like it has the most weight, but I wouldn't, like lay down the gauntlet and say that that's, that's who it has to be. Let's see. Uh, hey, Blaine, I see you there, Blaine, my buddy Blaine. Um, he asks, <clears throat> how do you reconcile the teachings of Colossians 1.13 of Christians being delivered out of darkness and into the kingdom with premillennial teachings that the kingdom hasn't come yet? Um, well, I think that that's, I actually think that that might be a mischaracterization of premillennial teaching. So, my view, at least, is that the kingdom of God is here now, internally. It's an internal part of us, and 
the kingdom of God will come to the earth, as in God reigning and ruling upon the earth and all nations subjecting themselves to him and yielding to him. And that's a future thing. So uh, Jesus, he kind of affirms this because he says a couple things. One thing he says is um, the kingdom is in you, in you. There's the kingdom of God is here in you. And then also he says that my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would fight. So here's some logic. Here's some Jesus logic for you. Um, if we're not supposed to fight in Jesus's name, then isn't it true that Jesus's kingdom is not yet here on this earth? Think about that, right? Because kingdoms have military armies. You know, it's like there's all these rebe this rebellion against God. If Jesus's kingdom was literally true theocracy on the earth right now, wouldn't we be fighting? Wouldn't we? Wouldn't we stand up and take arms and enforce the rule of the king upon the people of the earth? But no, that's because we're pre-millennial. We're before the kingdom of God. So the kingdom is within us. This is my view. Within us because God's kingdom is wherever God is reigning as king. And he's king in my heart and he's king in your heart. And so his kingdom has arrived with you individually in a personal level. But globally, worldwide, that's a future thing. Um, and that's when Jesus returns. They're the second coming that establishes the kingdom. When he comes in his kingdom, Jesus talks about in his parables. So to me, those all seem to work uh, well together. Uh, Darth Vega says, was Jesus a socialist? Uh, nope. Chris Buckland says, no, I'm just <laughs> um, I mean, I think someone would have to make a pretty strong case for Jesus being a socialist. The Bible talks about God caring for the poor. Okay. But is caring for the poor really where the debate is? Like, I, I don't really generally talk about political stuff too much because it's not my area. It's not what I know a lot about. But um, but it seems to me that every political party should care about the poor. And the question is, how should we, as a government, properly care about the poor? That's a different issue, right? But caring about the poor, I, I think everybody should agree on that. Um but how do we properly care for the poor and what role of government and all that kind of thing? Jesus didn't seem to to set up any sort of political governmental thing. If Jesus is anything, he's a theocracist. <laughs> and he's going to come and he's going to establish that kingdom on earth when he when he returns. So I think that you haven't seen any kingdom on earth that represents the kingdom Jesus is going to bring. As with God ruling and reigning in righteousness, him writing his law in our hearts and us following him. I don't think that, that a human kingdom can imitate and emulate the kingdom that Christ is setting up. So socialism would be a, a big step down from the good thing that Jesus is planning on bringing. And so would democracy. So would democracy. Um, these things do not represent Christ, in my opinion. Um, they might, you know, in a sense, what we're looking at now with governments is, what's the best version of government for fallen sinners where Jesus is not reigning as king? And it's all temporary, and Jesus is going to come, and he's going to establish the right and best government one of these days. Hopefully tomorrow. Um, Agape Apologetics says, uh, can you explain 1 Corinthians 11 and if the Bible is sexist? Um, that's a lot to talk about today. So, um, Okay, yeah, that's the passage, 1 Corinthians 11. That's the passage on head coverings. And let me... Let me say this. Whatever your view on head coverings, I don't think it's right to have a conclusion that the Bible is sexist. So let me take, at least for the time being, 
the strictest possible view of head coverings. And let's read through the passage, 1 Corinthians 11, and let's and then I'll explain why I think this does not make the Bible sexist and that that should not be on the table for discussion. Okay, so um, 1 Corinthians 11, verse uh, 2. Now I commend you, he says, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every, uh, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered. Well, let me come back to verse four in a second. So first off, I'm going to take the most conservative view I can on this passage, um, and and so what it's saying is, uh, the man has authority, an authoritative position over his wife, not over women. Catch that, not over women, over his wife. There's a difference. Um, women are told to submit to their, their own husbands, not every man that shows up that they're never told to submit to men in general, but to, to her husband. And so there's a yielding that that's consistent with Ephesians. Okay. So every, uh, the, the head of every man is Christ. So my head is Christ. I'm submitting to Christ and the head of the wife is her husband. So the wife is submitting to her husband and the head of Christ is God. Now, if I'm going to say that the wife is inferior and is it's, it's sexism, the wife's inferior to her husband, then I'm going to have to say that Christ is inferior to God. And that's blasphemy. That's actually blasphemy. So if Christ can yield in submission to the Father, and this is a beautiful thing, then how can I call it sexism to say that God has set up a structure in marriage where the wife yields to the husband? I only call it sexism if I am hateful of God's authority structure that he's given on earth. But you don't think you're inferior to your boss at work. I mean, I yield and I submit to my boss at, on my job, but I don't think he's better than me. I don't think there's an inferiority thing. There's a difference between role and value. So, right, value, same, right? That's what Genesis says. In the beginning, God created them male and female, that he made them in his image. So female is in the image of God just as much as man. And in Christ, there is no male or female. So as to the spiritual side of things, the, the woman is equal to the man in all spiritual senses. But as to the roles of how God wants us to live this out in life, here we have husband, wife, we have a difference in, uh, in, in role, though equality in person. That's exactly what we see with Christ, with the second member of the Trinity, and with the Father, the difference in role, but equality in person. And so, um, verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So the covering here, the head covering, well, we just, we just read that the, the covering of every man is Christ and every woman is her husband and Christ is God. So that this, this covering is in a sense of roles, of, of authority. And so uh, when, a, when a man prays or prophesies with his head uncovered, either it's a physical covering or it's saying that he is not, um, or excuse me, with his head covered, I totally read it wrong. So rewind. Right, verse four. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. He's not recognizing the authority and the position he's been given if he covers his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. She's not recognizing the authority of the husband in that sense. So then what is this saying? This is about like, it's about head coverings. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, but if you want to make this about the value of women in society... We're talking about clothing. If if you take the strongest, most potentially sexist view of this passage, you can. If it, if you say it's not about culture, because there's a case for it being just about culture in First Corinthians 11, but you say no, no, let's just ignore all that. I say it's still not sexist. If God's like, 
I want you to have a covering because I want it to be symbolic of what I've done. What's wrong with this? I don't, I don't see anything morally wrong with it. Um, now you can, now you can flash images of, of, uh, of these Islamic women who are bundled up and you can barely see their eyes, you know, and they're just like totally head to toe and you can't even see like the wrist or anything because then they'll just be stoned or something crazy. But that's obviously not this passage. Let's not confuse the two. Let's not, let's not do that. Um, so verse, uh, Six, if the wife will not cover her head, then she should uh, cut her hair short. But if, since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Um, so he's just drawing a parallel. If, if it's a disgrace, if one's a disgrace, then indeed it's because there's something about your, 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 your role as a woman that you're giving up when you're not acknowledging your relationship with your husband properly. I think that that seems to be what's being implied there. So... Man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Because Eve was made from Adam. Now, are they both in the image of God? Yes. Yes. But as to role, there's a difference in role, not in value, not in person. And then verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Okay, man was made, and then woman was made from man. But then he's going to rescue us from the sexism of this. In verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but, but woman for man. Or excuse me, verse 10. Or maybe it's verse 11. We'll keep reading. Uh, it's been a while since I read through this chapter. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. And so there's the balance. There's the balance. So yeah, woman is made for man. That's sexism. Hey, but man comes from woman. That's right. Remember, man, where you came from. That's our culture. Our culture is like, it's weird. We're, we can We can be sexist, but only if it's steers towards women but not towards men right um but the bible here is i think giving this balance differences in roles equality in their actual ranks and values sorry my phone's blowing up over here um anyway i'll one of these days i like to do a more thorough exegesis of the passage uh what i wanted to do just now is just to say look no matter how you take this passage it's i think modern sensitivities hypersensitivities maybe that cause us to think that it's sexist if God has a view of, of this that we don't like. Look, if God wants every guy to wear pinky rings, then every guy should wear pinky rings. Do we know who we're dealing with here? We're talking about God. <laughs> so the idea that, that I would look at God and, and charge him with moral error or being sexist to me seems monumentally unwise. Um, now, you may interpret the passage differently. You may interpret it very differently, actually. Um, and, uh, and maybe one day I'll, I'll get into that. But I don't think it's an issue of sexism. And if we make it about sexism, we put glasses on that force us to read the passage wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Let's see. I'll take... I'm looking at the time right now. How long have we been going? Just over an hour. So I'm probably going to wind it up pretty quick here because what I'm doing right now is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to prepare for this debate. And so I'm spending like every waking moment of mine getting ready for this thing. I really appreciate your guys' prayers. So let me tell you... Uh, I'll take some more, a couple more questions probably, but... If you want to be part of this debate, what you've got to do is you actually have to make sure that on my YouTube channel, you've got not only the subscribe button hit, but you have the bell icon like with the little little quote marks on it. So you're getting notifications. That's the idea. If you're not getting notifications, then you're not going to be able to um, know wh what time and where this debate is happening because I'm going to post a link when it goes live um, on Thursday at 5 p.m. that you could click. But you won't. It'll be a community post and you won't get that if 
most likely if you don't have notifications enabled. So you're going to want to do that if you'd like to be part of that debate. And I'd appreciate your guys' support and uh, prayers for those things. All right. Teresa Borayo says, uh, what's your testimony on how you came to Christ? Um, well, that's a long story. But the short version is that I, um, I heard the gospel when I was about 12 years old. And I went to church and... I had like a sense of awareness um, of my sin, and it was actually the Ten Commandments that, that made me aware of it. Um, uh, I thought I thought I'm a good person, I'm a good person, and then I realized that I'd like taken God's name in vain, and that I had lied, and that I had stolen, I'd done all that stuff, and so I had this sense of awareness of sin and guilt, um, even though I'm 12. Uh, certainly, I've racked up plenty more guilt since then. <laughs> uh, but when I went to, to to church, a friend invited me in junior high. You want to go to church, Mike? And I, in, in all honesty, I just, anything to get out of the house was a good thing to me. So I go to this youth group on a Thursday night near my house with my buddy. And um, that's the first time I remember ever being at church in my memory. And um, I liked being there. It was out of the house. That was a good thing to me. Not being home was a good thing to me. And I just decided to keep going. And I, so I kept going and I heard the gospel. And when I heard about Jesus forgiving me freely, I just believed it immediately and I was relieved so it was just a work I think it was just a work of the Holy Spirit in my life and it was years later when I started getting into apologetics and thinking about all that other stuff and I started asking like how do I really know this is true and I'm not delusional that I'm not just um, caught up in some movement and I tried to double check all of my beliefs and the apologetics I do as a result of that but yeah I just I just I was just a kid that needed help and Lord help me yeah so, yeah, the the sense of God's presence in my life and the change that took place was very real and continues to be. Let's see here. I got Glenn McDonald who says, uh, non-believer question, is there nothing God could could do to lead you to believe it was immoral? Like, is there something God could do that I would consider immoral? Uh, how would you know if he's good or not aside from just accepting God's word for it? Um, I don't... And I, I, okay, I already know that some of the atheists are going to just try to ream me on this topic. Maybe not you, Glenn. I'm not saying you are. I don't know that you would, but I know some who will. <laughs> um, I think it's philosophically irrational to think that God is not good. I think it's irrational. Um, I believe that God is the grounding for moral goodness. God, his very character is the grounding for moral goodness. And therefore... He establishes goodness by his exi His existence establishes what is good. So how could he do anything that's not good? All that he does is good. If, if I see something in the world or, or God does something even in my life and I think, how could that be good? All it means is that I am clearly struggling with limited information and being stuck in my current time of life and all that. But in no way could this be that God is less than good? I just don't think that's philosophically even possible. So it's like saying, you know, is there anything a circle could do to make you think that the circle was a square? I'm like, well, no. I mean, if it's a circle, it's never, it's never a square. Um, and it's in the same sense. Like, I don't think there's anything God could do to make me think that he wasn't good. Um, so on the contrary, it, let, let's suppose that you didn't take my view and you think, 
Um, well, God flooded the world, you know, in the days of Noah, he floods, he floods and people die. And, and, and you think that that was immoral, that God did something wrong. I'm just like, really? Like you, you honestly think, think about this. Like you think the the creator of the universe, the one who establishes all of existence, his presence establishes existence. His creation creates all things. Morality is can only be grounded, in my understanding, from God. I can't think of even a potential grounding for morality beyond him, uh, let alone a good one. And you think he's evil? I don't understand that. Like there's an like there's a real God that's actually evil. So you're you're more good than you're more morally pure in your intuitions and your impressions of life than actually God. At that point, I go, I think there's a lack of wisdom there. I don't think that we should shake our fist at God. I I, I don't think that there's any wisdom. There is no there is no counsel against God. There is no wisdom against God. There is no moral challenge against God. If He exists, He's morally good and pure and right. If he doesn't exist, there is no moral. There is no pure. There is no right. There's no wrong. There's just things people do. Um, yeah, so that would be my, my understanding of that. I hope that that helps at least give you my perspective on it. I don't think another perspective is even reasonable. Now, maybe maybe I'm missing something there, but that's me really trying to think it through. Um, all right. Well, I'll look for one more question here. Let's see. Jim Powers says... Um, how do we know the book of Hebrews is inspired if we don't know who wrote it? Um, the, the inspiration of scripture. Okay, so we, I'm trying to think of how to answer this in a brief way. <laughs> I have a, a three-part, uh, I think it's three parts in my Evidence for the Bible series. So for, for more information, go look on my YouTube channel, look under playlists, and find the playlist that says Evidence for the Bible. In that playlist, I talk about how we got our New Testament books. I deal with the first century evidence, and then I deal with the church councils, you know, in the, in the third, fourth, fifth century as well. And I talk about all that. Um, so, Book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Um, but what we do know is Hebrews pro at least proclaims, right, that it, that it has apostolic teaching in its pages. So it could be, some people think Paul wrote it, some people think it was Apollos, some people think it was Barnabas, some people think it was somebody else. Um, but uh, but it, it has apostolic teaching. Read Hebrews chapter 1, and it, it declares to you that these are the things, you know, from the apostles, right? So it has apostolic teaching. So whoever penned it was writing down the things they had learned from the apostles, even if it wasn't one of them. But when it comes to scripture and the inspiration of scripture, it's not so much that the apostle themselves has to write it for it to be inspired. It's that God has to decide, I'm going to inspire this to be written. And he could obviously use anybody to write it. You know, he could be, it could be Paul writing, or it could be Paul working with uh, an amanuensis, a secretary, to, to write down a text. And then God's inspiration is in that, in that process to make sure that the text itself is inspired by him. So I think that he, the the question of who wrote it isn't as important as the question of is it inspired, and for that I I deal with it in my uh, in my video series. Um, to the early church, I think what mattered was that the book of Hebrews was I'll use this phrase apostolish, <laughs> meaning that it it did tie back to and connect to apostolic teachings, 
And then the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, it just organically became part of the Bible. And that's really the, the true story of the New Testament is it just organically, this is just what happened. These are all the texts that were written in the first century and they just became our scriptures in a very organic and natural way. And you kind of either believe that God was working in that process or he was not working in that process. But looking at it from the back end, we can say, it's very interesting that none of the weird Gnostic gospels made it in, that all of the texts that did make it in have this consistency and they do have either apostolic authorship or apostolic nature to them, like the book of Hebrews. Um, so more details in my, in my actual series. Um, on evidence for the Bible. And thanks guys for being with me. Um, I will post the link live at 5 p.m. on Thursday. Please please keep me in your prayers for this debate. Um, I'm hoping that it goes very well. My debate uh, opponent, uh, I mean debate opponent, I'm, I'm not, he's not my enemy, but uh, is a guy named Paul uh, from Paulogia, which is a, a atheist YouTube channel that mostly makes fun of uh, answers in Genesis. That's kind of his shtick. And I'll be on a non sequitur show, which is an atheist, a very quickly growing atheist YouTube channel. And so um, you'll be able to find it there. But make sure to, you know, do that notification thing so you can uh, you can find out exactly what's going on. All right. Lord bless you. Thanks for joining me.